Welcome to a podcast called Intrepid. I'm Stephanie Carvin. Following three days of police action that began on February 18th, the convoy in Ottawa came to an end. And shortly thereafter, so too did the use of the Emergencies Act by the federal government. But although the honking has stopped, the ripple effects of the convoy movement and the invocation of the Emergencies Act continue. While many were clearly relieved that the federal government stepped in to stop the Ottawa occupation and protect border crossings, others felt that the government went too far in doing so, threatening the rights of Canadians in the long run to make up for the short-term incompetence of three levels of government. Now, regardless of how one may feel, we've now entered into the next stage. The Emergencies Act requires two reviews once it has been invoked one by parliamentarians, and the other will be a broader review that will take a more comprehensive look at what happened. So to think through the next steps of the convoy's aftermath, I asked Leah West and Tomas Junot to join me to talk about their thoughts on review, transparency, and the implications for the national security community. And just a quick programming note, we will definitely be producing more content on the war in Ukraine in the coming weeks. But we want to be sure we're keeping our eye on the ball when it comes to issues with our own democracy as well. It sure seems that 2022 shows no sign of slowing down. Hi, Leah. Hi, Tama. Hey, Steph. Hi. So thanks for joining me as we've seemed to have veered from one crisis to another. We've already had our first Russia podcast with Craig released, but I wanted to really return to this idea of emergencies and now reviewing what happened now that the emergencies is over, right? I've learned to start time stamping this because events move so quickly. So we're recording this on Friday, February 25th at 1230 PM. Leah, I want to start with you because you have been very clear at how uncomfortable you are with the invocation or use of this act. We didn't really get to it while it was in play, but that's okay. I think that kind of gives us a chance to take a deep breath and, and reflect. So what were your concerns? So my concern was always about the basic legal threshold for invoking the act. And the my first questions were, what was the justification? What was going to be the threat to the national security as defined in the CESIS Act that was leading or causing the emergency? Because under the legal test, the emergency has to arise from a threat to the security of Canada. It can't be ancillary to or in association with. So I was always wondering at the beginning when we first heard that this was coming before we had any justification, what that was going to be. We ultimately found out from the government that they relied on threats or serious acts of violence towards persons of property that was ideologically and politically motivated. And while there was some justification offered for that in the documents laid before the House, they didn't do a great job of explaining how those threats caused the national emergency that they defined which was really focused on the economic impact of the border closures, the impacts on trade, and to a lesser extent, the impact on public health and safety. So I wanted to understand, and I'm still looking to understand, how it is that the government says that it's serious acts of violence that caused this emergency, threats or acts of violence, I should say, that caused this emergency, rather than being something that was a byproduct of. And just to be clear to our audience, who I'm sure at some point have been now explained how the Emergencies Act works in Canada, but basically, as you said, it has, it, it can't just be anything. It can't be like a balloon shortage in Canada, right? It can't be missing puppies. It has to actually be tied to the thresholds which set out in Section 2 of the CSIS Act. So it's either espionage, 
foreign interference, uh, violent extremism. It doesn't actually say the word terrorism in, in 2C, even though that's what we usually use for that. And then finally, de-subversion. And, and I think that might actually be something we talk about later, maybe not today, but going forward, like what this actually means. So yeah. And then as you say, Leah, they, they set all that out in their section 58 justification, but maybe not in a way that was as directly tied to what was happening. I, I guess I would just come back to you on one thing is that the government was saying that there was this threat of politically motivated violent extremism or ideologically motivated violent extremism. You said that, well, you know, the threat was to economic well-being of Canada and to a certain extent our foreign relations with the U.S. and the supply chain and things like this. But they were also talking about how that threat was growing, right? That, that this was something that was increasing over time. Does that have any impact on how we think about how the Emergencies Act is used. It's not just the fact that there's a static threat, that it's something that is evolving as, as time goes forward. I'm not, by the way, just yeah. to be clear, agreeing necessarily with that assessment. Just I was curious as to how that worked. Yeah, so it does. The language of the act and the language of the CESTAS Act that's relied on doesn't specify that the crisis has to can't be something that's on the horizon. So it does talk about threats of serious violence and endangering health and safety when we're talking about the actual definition of national emergency. And But my problem is that to meet the threshold, you still need to prove that that serious threat of violence is what is driving the national emergency. And the national emergency being described by the government was one really tied to economic interests. And the fact that those extremist elements who were potentially infiltrating or leveraging the, the protests and the blockades, et cetera, to advance their cause, they weren't causing that economic insecurity. They were using it to their advantage and potentially could have used it to advance violence, et cetera. But the language of the act is very specific that the national emergency, right? So what is the government defining as the national emergency? They we're really defining it as an economic interest emergency that has to come from the threat. And it can't just be that the threat actor is leveraging a situation. So it's that piece that to me is really missing, at least from the evidence that we've seen so far. And that's why I think, and we're going to talk about the, the importance of after action inquiry into this to see, and perhaps it wasn't feasible for the government to release the information that they were basing that assessment on. That's always a possibility, but that's why inquiry after the fact is really necessary, I think, because there are still court challenges going forward. And a lot of Canadians question, like me, whether or not the Emergencies Act was invoked appropriately. And I think given what we've seen about rhetoric and divisions and lack of political trust, getting to the bottom of that is going to be really important for moving forward. Okay, I'm glad you ended on that point. I appreciate that. I appreciate that kind of description of your concerns. But speaking of, of trust, one of the key things here is transparency. So who better to bring in than, than Tomaj, who is the outgoing chair now of the uh, National Security Transparency Advisory Group. I believe it's now public that you're leaving, Tomaj. So you've been studying, I think, for three years now, this idea of transparency. And I can't think of any more important time to maybe have transparency than during an emergency, although maybe people might think the opposite. So I'm wondering, how do you think the government performed on this front over the last few weeks and what you think they got right, but also maybe what you think 
could have been improved? Overall, I think they performed uh, somewhere between not very well and okay. Not a disaster, but not more than that. When you think about transparency in the national security realm, there's two broad reasons why you want transparency. One is on ethical grounds, on moral grounds. Uh, in a democracy, government should be as transparent as possible, period. It's an end in itself. And that's absolutely true. But the reality in the world of politics is that abstract goals like that are, are hard to grasp and, and hard to motivate uh, people. What I find should be, but in practice is not more compelling, is, is the pragmatic argument in favor of transparency, which is it's in your interest uh, to be transparent, even though in the short term it may involve costs and complications. You can make that argument in the national security realm on multiple fronts. Being transparent in your relations with minority communities, for example, engaging them constructively and so on, helps you to build trust, which ultimately is good for national security. Not being transparent is not good for national security. And that seems like a no-brainer, even though in practice in Canada, as well as in other democracies, we haven't done very well at that level. In the field of disinformation and misinformation, uh, the issue of transparency also becomes really interesting. And this is where it becomes linked to, to the debate that we're having right now. When government is not trans on whatever specific issue or in general, that opens the door, uh, that creates a vacuum, and it opens the door for either hostile actors to exploit the information vacuum to spread their own lies, propaganda, disinformation, misinformation, information operations, however that you want to refer to it. But it, beyond the, the activities of hostile actors, it also opens the door for regular people who are not necessarily directly or even indirectly targeted by the activities of hostile actors to just believe inaccurate stuff that is circulating uh, either because of sloppy media work or conspiracy theories going around for whatever reason. And that's a problem because it fuels the mistrust that you very specifically want to fight. And that has played such a big role in fueling the specific problem that we saw in the last few weeks in Ottawa and elsewhere. So what we've seen to come to your specific question in the last uh, week or so, uh, or a bit more than that, if we go back to, to, to before the, the end of the protests, um, the government has declared, invoked the Emergencies Act, as Leah was explaining very well, said why, but did not provide much detail. And right there, for me, that's a problem. Because in a democracy, when you invoke such uh, extreme measures like that, even though they didn't use a lot of the extreme measures they could have, they still invoked it. And that is a big deal in a democracy you really need more than ever the buy-in from as many people as possible in the population. You're never going to get buy-in from everybody. That's normal, but as many as possible. And one of the ways to do that is to communicate clearly why you're doing that, what you're going to do with it, and what you've done with it. And we did not see the government doing that very well. And to the extent that there was information sharing with the public, more often than not, it was reactive. So you would have press conferences with the public safety minister or others who said, okay, as of today, we've arrested X number of individuals, or as of today, we've frozen X number of bank accounts. That's good. That's being transparent, but it's very reactive transparency. It's better than nothing, but what would be even better would be much more proactive transparency, where ahead, the government would say, okay, these are the specific criteria based on which we're going to be freezing bank accounts, based on which we're going to be taking other decisions on what we're going to do with these exceptional powers, et cetera, et cetera. And at that level, if you define transparency, not in a narrow reactive way, but in a broader proactive way, no, I don't think the government has done exceptionally very well. To be fair, that's not a surprise because it's consistent with the performance, not only of this government, but previous successive governments before that uh, in terms of transparency and national security. I really like that uh, distinction that you've made there, right, between proactive and reactive transparency. And I would agree. I mean, it, 
again, not to defend necessarily the government, but to say, we've never done this before, but yeah, I would agree with you. This is a problem we've always had with regards to national security in Canada and that we shouldn't be surprised that it happened right now. The point you just made is an important one, that that we've never done this before. And it's one thing that I've learned in the almost three years now of work on the Transparency Advisory Group is that it's very easy for people on the side, whether it's academics or civil society uh, or in the media, to say you have to be more transparent, which is the right thing to say. Uh, But in practice, transparency, uh, transparency is a lot of work. It takes a change of culture. It takes new institutions, new skill sets, et cetera. uh, And it doesn't come uh, easily. Uh, So if you keep in mind that the government has not been uh, very transparent over the years, to expect a much higher level of transparency now probably would not have been very realistic. Right. And I'll just add on this reactive front, right? We didn't even hear the government was considering invoking the Emergencies Act until they did it, right? We didn't know that was something that was on the table um, at all. We didn't hear about the consultations in advance or the potential, what the, the tipping point would have been for the government, which I found very surprising and very different from the conversations that were happening around the invocation of the Emergencies Act with COVID-19, where it was very transparent that those conversations were happening, that the government was engaging in consultation and thinking carefully about it. We didn't get any of that up front here. We just got essentially a leak on the Monday morning that it was coming and then the announcement on Monday afternoon. And to me, that again, that 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 drove a lot of questions for me about why now when the things that we were hearing on the Sunday shows <laughs> didn't line up with what we were hearing on Monday morning. It was a bit of whiplash. I will grant you that. But okay, but I think this actually then drives us forward then to the next question, which is maybe what, Toma, you would call retrospective transparency or uh, review. Now, there are review requirements built into this legislation. It's my understanding, of course, like the act had to be voted on by parliament, maybe because it was a confidence vote, there wasn't really that much space for for retrospection and things like that. It went along party lines, but also there is an automatic review required in the legislation itself. And we never actually should say we never even got to the Senate review or Senate vote because it was revoked in the middle of it. I feel bad for everyone who had maybe stayed up late that night making a statement. So uh, Leah, do you want to walk us through the the kinds of reviews that are mandated as a result of invoking this legislation? Yes, yeah, so there's two separate in and above this the, the parliamentary confirming the invocation. The first one that is supposed to be more contemporaneous, but given the facts, will not be. And that is a parliamentary review committee that has to be created with both houses, so members of the Senate and and the House of Commons with uh, representatives from all official parties. And their job is essentially to review the measures that are being in place. So the powers that the government is using under the act. And that's a check on how they're being used, what the measures are, and then how they're actually being used during the emergency. Now, um, because of the circumstances, they'll be doing an ex post review. Obviously, the emergency measures are no longer in force, but presumably the parliamentary review committee will look at how they in fact were used to ensure that they were reasonable, proportionate, that they didn't extend beyond what the government said they would be used for, etc. So that's one. And not to cut you off, but just to be clear, mm-hmm. this has to be a parliamentary committee. It cannot be a committee 
of parliamentarians, right? That's correct. So that's a different, that's a different, it's funny, I thought that's what we'd be talking about all in January, and it really wasn't. But the idea that the National Security Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians is a committee comprised of parliamentarians, it's not a parliamentary committee. This committee that is reviewing how the Emergencies Act was implemented, it can't be kicked to NSI COP. It has to be done with parliamentarians. And the key issue is going to be, and to my, I'd like your view on this after, is that it's going to have to be, what, will these parliamentarians have access to classified information? Yeah. Right? Right. So it does have to be both members of houses, but the parliamentary review committee is empowered to review even and required to review orders and regulations that could have been made without publication. So the Emergencies Act actually allows orders and regs to be issued that are never made public under the statutory, <laughs> statutory instruments act. So if that was the case, the parliamentary review committee would be the sole body having a chance to review those. They're, they have to be sworn to secrecy and their meetings are supposed to be held in private. So the act does play the review of secret information that can't be released publicly. And I would suggest that includes the basis for those measures in the first place. If you're going to ask them to review whether or not the measures are necessary and proportionate and used, one would suggest that you also have to provide them with the information that justifies using those measures in the first place. That's important. Now, the question of security clearance, right? I know that was raised in the Senate. It, nothing's stopping from the members of NSI COP serving on this parliamentary review committee. So if you wanted to ensure that everybody had security clearance, you want people who are familiar with the national security um, intelligence community, right? You could tap those people to serve on this parliamentary committee. That wouldn't be a problem. It just wouldn't be an SI COP. It would be this parliamentary review committee. So that would be one way around it. But I think to suggest that they can't do their job because they don't have security clearance, there are ways around that. You can also get parliamentarians, as we know, with NSI COP security clearance. So I think that in this case, given the fact that the government continues to hint around the edges at extremism and violent movements and the fact that people like me don't have all the information, thanks, Minister Blair, that, that they would be looking for a way to provide that kind of information to parliamentarians. So, okay, so that's the parliamentary review. What was the second kind of review? The second one is, is an inquiry, right? So that is required under the act under section 63. So 60 days after, in this case, the act has been, the declaration has been revoked, I should say, the governing council, so cabinet has to require an inquiry to take place. Inquiries are typically done in accordance with the Inquiries Act, which actually sets out the role and the powers of commissioners of inquiry and who um, they can get to help them and what types of information they can compel and that kind of stuff. So it's a pretty, it, that's an act we use quite often. The act itself, both the Emergencies Act and the Inquiries Act, doesn't set out a process for dealing with information that is either privileged for cabinet confidences or could, if released, would be injurious to national security, defense, or international relations, which is typically how we define injurious material. That doesn't mean that commissions of inquiry haven't um, been set up in the past in a way that can look at that kind of information. We just have to look at the ARAR inquiry, for example, the terms of service set out the fact that there would be processes in place for that inquiry to deal with injurious information, et cetera. So this, like I said, the Emergencies Act and the Inquiries Act doesn't specify a way for dealing with that. 
But I would hope in this case that the terms of reference given to the commissioner by cabinet would include procedures for that. One last thing, the inquiry itself is more of a step back. It, it, the commissioner will be looking at how did we get here? Right? How do we get to a point of invoking the emergency as opposed to that job of looking at the specifics of a power and how it was used and checking government power under the Emergencies Act? It's more of a, a retrospective review. And I think that it will be in a better place to review all those questions that I asked. A lot of the questions were asked that we've been asking about whether or not the Emergencies Act was the right tool, et cetera whether the Emergencies Act has gaps, whether or not we should revisit the Emergencies Act, all of that kind of stuff is what we'll get out of, hopefully, the inquiry. But again, those terms and conditions, or sorry, the terms of reference for the inquiry will be set by cabinet ultimately. Okay, so Tama, I think that then swings back to you. What are you hoping, at least perhaps from a transparency perspective, that we're going to be seeing out of this? What questions do you have as these inquiries uh, start to move forward? And do you actually see a role, even though you're probably not going to be a part of it necessarily, but do you see the NS tag as, as having a role here? Um, well, on the NS tag itself, that would have to be a decision that we take collectively. So it, it, without having had that conversation amongst ourselves or depending on timelines after I'm gone as of June, uh, that'll remain to be seen. If I stayed with the NS tag, would I be uh, willing to consider the NS tag looking into this? Absolutely. Whether it's going to happen, that'll be for, for members to, to decide. On the issue of transparency and the various uh, steps that Leah described in the future, I'm, I'm of two minds here. On the one hand, and the three of us uh, having been in government, we understand that there is some information that is classified, that can't be made public, uh, that is necessary to build a full picture of what happened, why it happened, how it happened. So, you know, the, to, to get to a point where parliamentarians can do that, whether it's one of the formats that Leah described or something else, I absolutely support it. That being said, there's several questions or, or problems associated with that. One of them is that the intelligence community, and here I blame the community itself, but as much if not more, their political masters now or in the past, has such a tradition of hiding behind the wall of secrecy, such a tradition of using the excuse, which sometimes is justified, but very often is not, of information being classified not to share it, whether it's to share it publicly or to share it with some kind of inquiry or parliamentary committee or, or whatever the, the, the specific context is, that I do have a lot of concerns that it will be very difficult for uh, the public in general and whoever does this inquiry under whatever format to get what it needs. There's a huge tradition of overclassifying information in the intelligence community, of classifying information either at a top secret level when it could be less or classifying it at lesser level when it could be unclassified. And that's not going to change in the short term, and that will be a massive obstacle to to figure to understanding uh, or for these inquiries to, to make progress. Whatever specific format they take, I definitely hope that there will be a significant public dimension to it. Because as much as we do want parliamentarians to gain access to the classified information, to be able to build a comprehensive picture of what happened, what you also need is for as much information as possible to go in public, either in, in the form of a, a final report, but also in the form of testimonies uh, and, and things like that should not, in, from my perspective, happen in, in private as much as possible. And there's a lot of people in government, and this is a debate that I I've had, and you and me, Stephanie, looked at, at this question from a separate perspective, but in the book that we, we released last year, a lot of people in government will say, no, this is classified. We can't talk about this, which 
a lot of the time I think is is baloney. A lot of information on 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 the processes, on the reasons why things happened or didn't happen. Uh, don't have to be classified and very well could be shared publicly by senior officials in the community or by their political masters. But this is just not something we do well in, in, in this country. So I guess I want to end this podcast looking at what the implications of this will be for national security going forward. I mean, again, I think we'll be talking about this for a very long time. I still have lots of questions I want to think about and go through. This is early days. What are you thinking of in terms of implications for national security? So for me, the big question I have is how are we defining or what is the scope of Section 2C under the CSIS Act? I haven't really talked about this broadly, but to me, it seems like the justification, and this remains to be seen, was that unlawful activity tied with violent rhetoric was enough to meet that 2C threshold because it was motivated by politics or ideology, as opposed to what we have typically thought of in the past for terrorism as like building towards a serious threat of, of violence, right? We always, Craig and I talk about left of bang, right? Thinking about that. But if the unlawful activity plus rhetoric, right, that creates economic shutdown, right, because it's politically motivated, if that is enough now to say that's terrorism, right, at least under the the CSIS Act or violent extremism, what does that do for CSIS's mandate, right? If how broad does that reach out and how much do we have CSIS now looking at people who they wouldn't look at simply because of some of the rhetoric that's being used. And I think we've talked about, you've talked about this stuff, is the mainstreaming of violent rhetoric, right? So this the imagery of a noose and the imagery of, and the idea of saying things like, we're going to kill Justin Trudeau and the crap that comes in our own inboxes, right? <laughs> that, that is violent. So right? much like, crap. <laughs> so much violent crap. So if we are seeing an increased level of violent rhetoric and imagery being used, right? And people are willing to engage in unlawful activity to make a stand and you have those two things tied together when before we wouldn't have really thought of that as terrorism, but now we are because we can see how damaging it can become economically. Like, I think we're starting to really expand the scope of what we view we used to view as terrorism. And what does that mean for CSIS? What does that mean for how we think about terrorism and violent extremism? And I don't think we have good answers to that, but I think, I don't know if the invocation of the Emergencies Act is really what's causing me to have this question, but I think the fact that we had to rely on that definition here brought it to the forefront. And I'm guessing that these are the types of questions CSIS has been wrestling with even before this. But the fact that, you know, we had to now really discuss the CSIS Act definition publicly, that to me is something that I think is interesting moving forward. And I think to that end, whether or not the definitions of threats to the Security Canada, that one and others that have been raised in the conversation around the protest, like what does foreign influence actually mean? What does it mean to engage in subversive activity? How should we think about threats to critical infrastructure? Should it that be its own threat, right? Could really cause re, a rethink of how we define threats to the security of Canada, not for CSIS, but 
that term that gets defined in the CSIS Act is used across the Canadian national security landscape. So I think this has really brought that to the forefront that we really do need, we can't just play with the definitions behind closed doors because eventually government actors need to rely on those definitions to invoke and use powers. And um, when they don't line up, you get people like me screaming on Twitter. Well, I enjoyed your screaming on Twitter. And I should say, um, for all of those who wanted to look at the decision making behind the Emergencies Act, you produced an extremely useful guide on the Intrepid podcast website that I'll make sure that I link to in the show notes for people to look. I guess, I mean, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. I mean, I've, I've had the question of like, is this political violence or is this subversion? Um, and, but there's a reason CISA stopped investigating subversion in 1986, which is that it got crazy. It was a poorly defined term and it just became an abuse of human rights. And there was consensus this was the case. So CSIS really hasn't had a file there for some time. And then now I'm looking at this going, well, geez, I don't know where this fits right now. And yeah, I mean, just so many questions that I'm hoping will come out of this kind of wider scope review that you're talking about. What happens when an emergency doesn't fall neatly in the categories, which you've already talked about? What happens when the Emergency Act assumes everyone's competent? And part of the reason you're invoking the act is people just simply don't seem to be doing their jobs. I won't throw shade at any particular province. Yeah, but, I'll say on that yeah. as someone who have gone, has gone back and has been reviewing all of the debate from 1988, the a government just choosing not to respond to an emergency was never something that came up. Right. And that I, arguably this was... The, the problem in Ontario, but we'll maybe save that for another day. But also what happens if you're doing a criminal investigation at the same time, you're supposed to be discussing the threat that you're talking about, right? There was a vague allusion to arrests made in Coots, Alberta at the border crossing there and what was happening in Ottawa, but we really didn't get any kind of firm confirmation about that from any minister. So there's a lot there. So th that's my thoughts. I'm going to assume it's just hard. I mean, anyone who's probably done like a, a, a Jessup moot case, like Leah, like you just did, or gaming scenario, it's always hard to come up with these things. I guess it's hard to plan what your emergency is going to be. But I guess this is the importance of review, right? But anyways, Tama, what are you thinking in terms of implications? This is, a, we could have an entire podcast and podcast series on the, the national security implications of, of recent events. So uh, just quickly two that come to mind, but it's really not uh, comprehensive. One of them is social media. As you, Stephanie, said, and others, the protesters, the convoy, the truckers, even before January, for that matter, had been saying what they intended to do on social media. But for national security agencies, CSIS, others, uh, there are constraints in terms of what they can do at that level. And this is really complicated. And there are no easy answers, but it's a threat and it's a problem. And it's something that as we are currently equipped in this country, we can't deal with adequately. What is the answer from a legal perspective, but also from an institutional perspective? Who should be doing the scraping of social media uh, like that of Canadians while to, to ensure that threats are detected and can be acted on while respecting privacy and all other constraints that do have to stay in place? I don't know what the answer to that is, but it's something that we need to talk about. So that's point number one. And Point number two, and I'll stop at this one, is the fact that some of the threat associated with recent events came from the U.S. Um, as you, Stephanie, again, and others said, yes, this is a Canadian problem. These are Canadian extremists. Uh, the attempt by some people to, to really make this as something that the U.S. exported to Canada 
is a simplification. It's inaccurate. These are these are homegrown extremists. Or, but at the same time, they have links to like-minded individuals in the U.S. There was money coming from the U.S. A significant proportion of the money that was raised came from the U.S. Not only is that a problem per se, and the fact that we've been so reliant on the U.S. for security and prosperity for decades, that now we do need to shift a bit our mentality to say, yes, we're still reliant on the U.S. for our security and prosperity. That's not going to change. There's no way we can change that. But at the same time, when we think about the U.S., we also have to add that channel, which is there's a threat to Canada that comes from the U.S. in terms of ties between like-minded right-wing extremists in terms of funding and et cetera. So we need to shift the thinking. But then the other question is, what do we do about it? In the intelligence community, there is a massive, for largely right reasons, but maybe they take it a bit too far, but a massively ingrained culture of we don't spy on our allies. That's true. Of course, we're not going to start spying on the U.S., but at the same time, who has to look at these problematic individuals in the U.S.? Somebody has to do that if we want to be able to better uh, prepare for future events of this kind. How do you do that? Not only, again, legally, but also institutionally and culturally is extremely complicated. And that, that's a conversation we need to have. I just wanted to add one thing as Thomas was talking about social media. We set ourselves up after the 2016 election to start to be able to look at this disinformation cycle, especially that would undermine democratic societies and institutions, our electoral processes, our sovereignty and security, but only from foreign threat actors. That, that is a definition of what is the rapid response mechanism that actually sits now in Global Affairs Canada, but that only looks at foreign threat actors. And that same kind of understanding now and the need for focused research to understand potential threats and tactics that's being used in disinformation and on social media, that public, looking at publicly available open source information, we don't have a good home for that right now where the, where the threat is domestic. And because CSIS is very concerned and has been even tapped by Insira for using open source information to gather information about individuals that could be considered private, right? Even though it's public, you're gathering personal information about individuals based on their private posts. And that, that line there, when we're talking about domestic threats is one that CSIS is not well equipped to deal with. But if we're thinking about the threats and what constitutes a threat to the security of Canada, especially these days, the, well, how we need to empower CSIS to be able to do that kind of work in a way that is respecting of privacy. And that is a very tricky thing. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm glad we're ending this note on um, some, it sounds like we're snuggling up to section eight of the charter for all the people waving the charter downtown in recent weeks. Um, you can read well, and, that. And, and, and two, <laughs> right? Your freedom of association and expression too, right? So these things that you're allowed to do freely that then become a basis for investigating you, right? So it it is, it we are talking about things that are protected rights, but as violent rhetoric becomes so public and open, right, and live streamed and whatever, broadcasting um, crimes twenty four seven. Exactly. Yeah. How okay. much should our our security intelligence agencies be able to gather that public information and use it in their investigations? That's a tricky thing given their current authorities, but we've set it up for foreign threats. We just haven't set it up well for domestic threats. Guys, this has been really helpful. Thank you so much for uh, walking us through some of this. And uh, I appreciate you taking the time. I'm sure this will be not be the last time we talk about this. So everyone who's listening, stay tuned. 